Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. I think the Thomistic Institute is part of a growing Dominican empire in the American church. That, that'd be right. So I thought I'd repay the favor by saying favorable things about a Jesuit. Um, when people talk about sovereign, the sovereign authority to impose laws, impose legal obligations, and to enforce those legal obligations by punishments, especially when you put a lot of emphasis on the word sovereign, people nowadays will inevitably think about the state. The state is that sovereign authority that can make laws and punish you for breaching them. But as Catholics, we know that that is not entirely the case. There are, in fact, uh, more than one kind of potestas, uh, I may call it potestas, for a sovereign coercive authority. A sovereign authority can impose laws and enforce them by punishments. There is the state, but also there is the church. And um, at the hand, at the beginning of the handout, I give a, I think, quite a well-known passage from the end of the 13th Sortale Day, which is a statement of the doctrine that there are these two potestates. There is the state that governs the civil order, which is sovereign over that, and then there is the church that governs religion on this earth and is sovereign over that. And each has their own allocated responsibilities. Um, now, uh, if you look at the modern code of canon law, it breathes this sort of conception of the church as a potestas. Um, the code of canon law is a code of law that imposes obligations and claims the authority to enforce those obligations with sanctions. It has a jurisdiction which includes the baptized, that is the jurisdiction, um, and its obligations are clearly quite central to its functioning. For example, magisterial authority is understood in canonical terms. As you'll see, it, it is that authority that can impose canonical obligation, not only teach you, but impose a canonical obligation on you to believe it. But then we start beginning to wonder whether something has not gone rather odd. Because if we're familiar with the functioning of the modern state, it is mighty odd to have something like uh, a system of legal regulation of belief. Or at any rate, it's very odd if you're a modern liberal political philosopher, because that's the sort of thing that shouldn't be possible, that shouldn't happen. And in fact, political philosophers have been saying that since Thomas Hobbes, through people like Locke and Leibniz, and through to our time, people like Bernard Williams. And that raises a worry that all this talk about the church as a potestas, with a sovereign authority to impose law in the field of religion, with a jurisdiction over that type, could be just kind of sort of leftover pre-Vatican II colour. It can't really be true, because what's going on seems so radically unlike what we are familiar with at any rate, if we understand the modern political philosopher's way of looking at states, what is going on with states? So there's a model of how coercive legal authority works that's going to be very familiar to anyone who's studied or done a course in modern political philosophy. And it essentially works like this. The state, and by implication, the coercive legal authority in general, is basically one vast coordinative device. It basically works off existing human motivations that are widely shared, like a desire for security or a desire to have a halfway decent transport system. And it engages these motivations as a kind of coordinating device 
to enable them better to be satisfied. We all want a decent transport system, but spontaneously we're not going to organise it. We all want security, but you know who's going to have to serve and how will it be funded? So what the state does is, is it involves an authority that we as humans, by some sort of system of conventions, have basically given rise to, that coordinates the production, the satisfaction of these widely shared desires by setting up a mechanism of something like command, and um, we will we will get the transport system or the security if we all conform to the commands, if we all act as commanded by paying our taxes, by driving on a certain side of the street, and so on and so forth. This is a sort of picture of legal authority you get in someone as sophisticated as is Joseph Raz. If you look at the theory of, of external reasons as his theory of, of how legal obligations work, it's all about coordinating people who, whatever they is going on in their heads, uh, need to work together uh, uh, with some coordination to, to get what everyone wants. So if you look at the church, it doesn't seem anything like that. It doesn't seem to be an organisation that is about working off existing motivations and existing beliefs uh, um, at a level where they're just generally shared, sort of less common denominator things that we all want and believe, to somehow uh, get us what we all want. It's about transforming our beliefs and motivations um, through its operation as a teacher and, it seems, as a law-imposing authority. So we've got something very different going on. It seems to be something that operates to transform us, rather than, uh, psychologically, rather than to operating to uh, produce something out of a psychology that's already there, looked at at some level we wanted all along, just through coordinating stuff. So what we're going to look at in the debate between Francisco Suarez and Hobbes is a debate about how to think about coercive authority, not just in the case of the church, but also in the case of the state. Hobbes, we'll see, is a 17th century political theorist who fundamentally wants to discredit the idea that anything recognisable as the Catholic Church could be a sovereign legal authority. And he's going to do it by creating a metaphysical picture of how legal authority works that makes it completely implausible that anything like a church could be a sovereign legal authority. He's actually going to give the metaphysics that's generated this modern model of coercive authorities effectively a coordinator. And I rather think that's, in fact, his model of, of, of coercive legal authority. But that's certainly the model of legal authority that's generated by the metaphysics he was arguing for. And his, his more detailed views might be more, more nuanced. We don't need to worry about that. He's opposing someone he never met, because he was dead long before Hobbes' public career started uh, in the faraway land. So Francisco Suarez, this Jesuit a metaphysician, one of the very greatest Aristotelian metaphysicians of the early modern period, who was also a major legal theorist. And very unusually, he was equally adept at both civil and canon law. And one of his most important works, De Legibus, on laws and God the legislator, is essentially about explaining how coercive legal authority can be found both um, in the state and in the church. But for that to be possible, there must be basically something similar going on in both cases. He's very, very concerned to establish that um, when we're looking at humanly administered and imposed systems of law, positive law, whether it's the civil law of the state or the canon law of the church, fundamentally the same thing is going on. It's engaging with human beings and directing what they do in fundamentally the same way. Not completely the same way, because the church is not the state. There are going to be some very important differences we'll come to, but fundamentally the same way. Um, and he's going to try and argue that actually, um, if you thought the state was just a coordinated device, you were wrong, because actually it's a bit more like a church. 
It's, a, it's, it's about transforming your attitudes, your mental states, through its legal system. Um, uh, and it's teaching. It's also a teacher, just like the church is. Um, it's fulfilling a model of the church. Of course, both authorities go in for coordination, coordinatory regulation. You know, no one denies that states are involved in organising traffic systems, just as the church organises uh, the distribution of liturgical colours through the liturgical year. Uh, that can be understood in purely coordinatory terms, pretty much. Um, any liturgical anoraks are offended by that claim, just forgive me, um, but I think so. Um, but at a more profound level, what both these organisations are about is transforming our attitudes, making ones that would not have been our attitudes, our beliefs, our motivations, uh, prior to the existence of these potestates. And at the heart of this debate is a metaphysical debate. If you look at modern political theory, it tends to be uh, pursued without a detailed metaphysics. Indeed, Rawlsians are proud of the fact that you can do political theory, you can study justice, without having to do metaphysics. This is, this is basically a recommendation of their intellectual <laughs> enterprise. Uh, but this, this cannot be. Fundamental to any coercive legal structure is a fundamental feature of it. It only engages part of the world. It engages adult humans, basically, more or less. It doesn't engage the bunny rabbits. Um, and that's because we are metaphysically, uh, at a very deep level, not like bunny rabbits. And moreover, it's got to do one central function. It's got to change how we act. It's, you're not producing just all these laws just, just to occupy your, your, your day um, in, in legal in legislation. You want to change what actions people perform. Now, to change what actions people perform, there's got to be some power relationship between the law and compliance with the law. So I make the law, and I'm involved in some way in the exercise of a power. By power, I'm going to mean something like simply the capacity to produce or prevent outcomes. So bricks hitting a window and breaking a window, that's a case of power, causal power. Uh, but a law being passed, and then you conforming to it because the law was passed, that's a case of something producing an outcome. It involves the operation of the power. And that means that any legal theory has got to tell you what power is involved in this process of issuing laws and getting people to conform to them. Most modern legal theorists don't, I think, discuss, not even natural law, they even get John Finnis discussing this in any detail, I think it's fair to say, um, uh, which is strange, but, but perhaps not unsurprising about modernity. But actually, it's a central problem. And it's at the heart of the debate between uh, Hobbes and people like Bramall. Hobbes is running his revisionary account of how legal authority works on the back of a naturalistic account of power. As Bramall says in a rather unusually for Bramall perceptive part of the debate with Hobbes, one of the main grounds of all TH's errors in this question, this is the middle of the first plague, is that he acknowledges no efficacy but that which is natural. Efficacy is just power. And basically, Brown was saying, all that Hobbes believes in is bricks hitting windows. It's motions of matter producing or preventing further motions of matter. And that's exactly right. And that is why we're going to get this coordinated picture coming through. For Suarez's model of coercive authority as a teacher to work, it's going to involve an account of legal authority as involving the operation of powers, capacities to produce or prevent outcomes, that aren't bricks hitting windows, that are specific to, to rational nature. They only engage human beings whose rational faculties are up and working to a sufficient degree. They're going to involve forms of power that are radically, or to significant degrees, unlike what goes on in a brick hits window, but they're going to be equally productive. And law is going to move you through these powers uh, and it's going to engage powers that you or self-possess are also equally distinct of rational nature. And that's going to be fundamental to the capacity for coercive authority to function as a teacher, and in particular to regulate belief, which is not going to be a possibility for Hobbes. It's, it's, going, to, it's, going, to, it's going to transform you by engaging uh, uh, forms of power 
we zijn hier om om te zien, maar niet uit te But modern philosophy doesn't believe in these things, because basically modern political philosophy and modern legal theory operates tacitly, though it claims to be metaphysically gratis, with essentially something like a metaphysics of power of someone like Hobbes. But you can't do that, otherwise you end up with Hobbes' theory of cursive authority, which is not a plausible one, because if we look at what states actually do, it's very clear, I think, that they're teachers, not simple coordinators. Okay, so that's, that's the game plan. Okay, so let's look, first of all, at Suarez. So in works like De Legibus, um, he's giving an account of how law engages us as human beings and um, moves us to act. And he's going to deploy a number of forms of power that aren't found in non-rational nature, that aren't involved in motions of bricks or bunny rabbits or things like that. They're going to be uh, either a kind of form of power we ourselves possess or a kind of power that operates on us. Um, the power that we possess is freedom. And freedom for Suarez is a very special kind of power, unlike causation in a non-rational nature. It doesn't operate by necessity. If I take a brick and hit it and throw it at the window, um, I throw it hard enough and the window isn't reinforced, we all know what will happen. When the brick hits the window, a causal power belonging to the brick will operate and break the window. And, you know, it's not up to the brick to do anything else. Given its circumstances and the power it possesses, its operation is necessitated. And that's what the Jesuits in the early modern period called necessary causes. And they think non-rational nature is full of necessary causes. But as rational human beings capable of entertaining opposites, as Aristotle said in Metaphysics Book 9, in our mind's eye, we are capable of exercising a power, the operation of which is contingent. So I can, under one and the same circumstances, possess a power to determine that my hand goes up or to determine that it goes down. So it's up to me whether I raise my hand or lower it. So the presence of this power to determine is not necessitated in its operation. It can operate contingently, it can operate one way or another, and it's up to me which way it operates. It's up to me how I act. It's a perfectly familiar idea. It's just been unpacked in terms of an adaptation, a modification of an Aristotle's theory of efficient causation to include contingent efficient causes as well as necessary efficient causes. And this power over alternatives, as modern philosophers might call it, this contingent causal power, is what brings law into existence. What law does is give a kind of normative recognition to this power of, of, of freedom, this contingent efficient causal power. And it does it in two ways. It first gives me a right to exercise it. Uh, I have a right to determine for myself what I do, if we could put it that way, because I have a capacity to determine for myself what I do by exercising this contingent power. Um, and the right protects the power and its exercise. Um, I might say a little more in discussion about why, why this, precisely why this, this contingently operative power creates a need for, but creates an object block against coercion. But it means that, for Suarez, not anyone can come along and tell you what to do and utter threats, coercive threats, uh, to get you to do it. They've got to have authority. And it's got to be, you've got to be doing something in an area where they're competent. Like, you know, if it's religion, it'll better be the church telling you what to do. And it's a civil matter, it better be the state. Um, but not, not just the chap down the road, you can't tell you what to do. Um, because you've got this jus libertatis, this right of liberty. And then, at the same time as it gives you liberty as a right, it gives, it imposes obligation, that allows obligation to be imposed on you. Because, it, one, you need guidance in how you exercise this contingent power, whether in one direction, a good direction, or another direction, which might be a bad direction. And um, you also, uh, if we're going to talk of genuine obligation, you need to be responsible for meeting it. And you can't be responsible if you're not in control of how you act. Um, and that control is provided by this contingent power. That you, it's up to you how you exercise over your actions. So freedom as a power creates two normative features of law, which in some ways contrasting, but they're also alive. Liberty is a right, and then obligation. And they are sort of run into each other because liberty is a right for Suarez, it's protected by obligation. It comes as part of the same law that gives you obligations. So I've got liberty as a right, you've got an obligation to respect it. 
lot of people get very worked up about scepticism, about moral responsibility, and say, well, you know, you better better bit worried about this notion of responsibility because it depends on a theory of freedom as a metaphysical power. We don't really believe in that sort of thing anymore. But they don't get worried about the right to liberty in the same way. I'll just leave you with the thought that I don't see any reason why, if you're worried about one, you shouldn't be equally worried about the other if you're given to scepticism about freedom as a power. And if you think you can do the right to liberty in modern political theory without a metaphysics of freedom, I think you've got a bigger job than you expected to have. But of course, people should be just blazing quietest in this area, you know why. Okay, so that's the power we exercise, but we exercise it uh, while being subject to another power or set of powers. And I need to call these normative powers. Um, go over the page. Um, these are, I call them normative powers. By the way, I'm, I'm not using this word quite in the same way as some modern ethical philosophers use it. By a normative power, I'm going to mean something very specific. It's a power that is specific to rational nature and directs our attitudes, our, our beliefs, our motivating appetites towards the true in the case of beliefs and towards the good in the uh, case of motivating attitudes. Um, and uh, we, I think, ordinarily would think of this, and, and certainly Suarez does, as the force of reason. For Suarez, rationality is a feature of us that leaves us susceptible to uh, the power of truth and the power of goodness uh, operating on us through objects of our thought, through mental objects that are potential objects of psychological attitudes, of beliefs and desires. Let me say a little more about how this works. Modern philosophers are very happy to talk about reasons moving us. I have a little quote from Christine Korsgaard here saying, well, we all believe that practical reasons must motivate us. They don't give you an account how the bloody power to motivate you works, usually. Um, but Suarez did. And it's, it's like this. Let's take practical reasons, because it's going to be very relevant to the case of law. I'm wondering what to do. And I've got the option. I could buy that house, or I could not buy it and do something else with my money. And I've got this state agent sort of trying to you know, sway me. And he's going to provide me with justifications. So I'm going to entertain, as an object of my thought, uh, that I buy the house. It's just an object of my thought. I may never buy the house. I may never decide to buy it, or if I decide to buy it, somebody might sort of screw me over money, so I, I, I can't pay for it, or all sorts of things like that. But it's still, I'm entertained by me as a mental representation, through a mental representation as an object of my thought. And I'm going to see it as good or desirable in certain ways. And if I'm rational, it will indeed be good and desirable in certain ways if I actually end up deciding to buy that house. And so Suarez puts it forward in the metaphysical dissertations, the tricks of all this stuff, a theory of how objects of thought engage the will, our motivational capacity, by coming with a, a goodness as a metaphysical property associated with them, which constitutes a kind of motivating force that leads me uh, to decide to do one thing rather than another. And you know, we talk about this sort of thing. That offer was so obviously desirable, I, I simply couldn't refuse it. And, and even before I, I, I actually decided on the offer, I was already beginning increasingly to want to uh, see or accept the offer. The goodness, the obvious goodness of uh, what I've been asked to decide to do just moves me. Very, and the more rational I am, the more genuinely desirable it is, the more compellingly it should move me into deciding on that option. We, we talk about the same similar way about belief evidence is compelling. We, we talk about justifications, both theoretical and practical, as if they are a kind of property associated with potential object of belief or an object of decision, a kind of mental object, and they move us insofar as we're rational. But clearly, this is not brick-sitting windows, because it's operating through a mental object. As they say, as, 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 as far as it is, the actual cause, when I take a decision, uh, 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 that moves me to exercise my freedom in a certain way is, is a mental object that is the finish, the end, the goal, which I may never attain. It's purely mental. And it operates, it's this, the force by which it operates is, is, is bonitas, it's goodness, which is a metaphysical feature of the world. Uh, it's not mass, like a brick has when it hits the window. And it's only going to affect 
Certainly, it's not going to move the bunny rabbits. It's not going to move the complete idiot. Uh, it's going to move you the more rational you are, and simply through your psychological attitudes, to produce, to, to, through, through your mental representations to produce your psychological attitudes. Uh, that's what I call normative power. It does not exist in modern political philosophy. Um, but it is the directive force by which law in its immediate form, its initial form, natural law, moves us. So um, uh, what's natural law, or natural law requiring me to decide to feed the the needy or uh, to decide against killing someone just because I dislike them, that's going to be a, a justificatory force, a force of goodness, that is of a, a form that's demanding the following way. Um, if I fail to be moved by this force to take this decision in this particular case, I'd be very bad. That's the conception of law you get. Uh, and there are bells and whistles about whether you need a bit of divine legislation to back it up, etc. Into the, I won't go into that, it doesn't matter for our purposes. It's essentially a normative power that moves us to the extent that we are rational to decide uh, 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 to go for the object it supports, the mental object it supports. So, so natural law is, is really, as Thomas would have called an external principle that explains our actions through this, this metaphysical structure that Suarez believes is, is explained operating through objects of thought. So when I perform an action, I take a decision in my head, that's where I exercise my freedom, it's immediately a freedom of will, which decision I'm inclined to, towards um, because there's some object of thought pushing me, not determining me, I'm still free not to go that way, but inclining me very strongly to decide on that object. That's my goal. So that's natural law. It's a force that moves us. It's it's going to be a force that moves us to comply with laws. Um, and that means, brings us to now why we need the state. Why don't we just have natural law operating on us uh, to uh, move us to do what's morally right? Well, it's not just that we need to organise traffic systems. Um, Suarez, actually, there's a whole level of our operation, a rational operation, that's simply not yet possible without political institutions. And um, this is uh, our possession of an understanding, not of my good or your private good, or the good of another private group, like the, 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 the football team I'm a member of, but a complete human community. Suarez says, I think not implausibly, that he's part of an old tradition, that um, until you have political institutions we do not have a natural capacity to understand what constitutes the benefit of complete human community. Uh, nor are we, obviously, therefore, inclined to pursue that good. We don't know how to do it. Um, you know, I can understand what it is for me to have an apple, uh, or for you to have an apple. What I don't understand is uh, what, the, what, what system of property rights governing an entire community the, uh, to have that will uh, uh, organise things like uh, general apple for ownership distribution and a lot of other things besides. I, I simply can't do that. It's, I just don't have a perspective in the world to do that. It's the thought. So what the institution of the state does is gives me an understanding of what the common good actually is um, and enables me to pursue it. And it does this by teaching. It's a witness to what the common good is. It's a witness to the fact that property rights are very important and they probably should take the following general form. It's a witness to uh, Suarez thinks the importance to a political community of everyone believing in God. Because in this period, they are still unenlightened enough to think that you can't have a virtuous political community, a flourishing political community, without which as social animals we can't flourish either, unless everyone adheres to rational monotheism. And the fact the state can actually teach as part of its law that you should believe in one good God, how does it do it? Well, look, its function is to act as a witness that better enables us to respond to the force of various forms of normative power. Uh, uh, 
especially those that are relevant to the good of the particular community. So it enables us to respond to the force of truth concerning what benefits the whole political community, and it enables us also to, to be motivated by um, that good. Um, so these, these legal and fundamental level, these legal directives are about facilitating the operationalness of, of the power of truth and goodness in relation to the general common good. And in, in imposing these laws, the state will also be teaching us. It will actually make explicit claims. Like, you know, property rights are really important, the judge says when he sends the, the burglar down for 10 years. Um, uh, and it will round those, 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 those truths that it's teaching home to you with punishments. I mean, this is something that Joel Feinberg realized when he put forward an expressive theory of punishment. One of the functions of punishment is, is to send a message that the crime you committed, your failure to meet the obligation, was very seriously wrong. So the state is a witness to the Bonham community. And this legal direction and backup sanctions are about better enabling you to respond to the force of normativity as it relates to what's legally required. So by the existence of God, what the state will do, if it wanted to do what Swallows thinks it should, uh, is, is ordain that everyone believe in the one God, but do this as a way with backing sanctions, it's a kind of sort of heresy law at the level of rational nature, not do revelations, do what you should believe on the basis of reason. The function of this law is to better enable you to respond to an epistemic case for the truth that God exists, and then also a, a moral case for the importance of the community of everyone believing that God exists, which Suarez thinks is just as important as we now think that uh, uh, believing in, in the equality of human beings in relation to various forms of identity is fundamental to the uh, flourishing of the community. So it's just the same. Um, and so what he's not doing when he imposes law is saying, you must believe in God because we told you to. No, we told you to, but our telling you to is actually a form of witness, and there's a case for believing in God that's independent of our command, and that's what we're directing you to, essentially. And this, part of the case could just be the witness of the state if you understand the state as an authoritative witness. So political authority is explained in terms of epistemic authority. Very important. The state is a competence in relation to the common good. It understands it, it's epistemic, and that's why it's got a special authority to, to, to enforce, to protect the common good, which you as a private individual can't possibly have. Because you, you just don't have just as an individual epistemic capacity. Okay, now we come to the church. The church is doing the same job, but in relation to the supernatural. So what happens is that with the coming of Christ, we are raised above nature, and with us are raising above nature, so too religion is raised above nature, to a destiny that transcends uh, our natural human capacities, which isn't earthly happiness, but the beatific vision in heaven. That requires revelation, the teacher of which is the church, the sacramental system and teaching authority of the church is about communicating uh, uh, truth and goodness at the supernatural level. And the function of canonical regulation is fundamentally the better to enable us by regulating things like sacraments, by imposing heresy laws and giving teaching backed by canonical authority, better enabling us, facilitating our response to our truth, just as the way the state was getting us to better understand the badness of burglary at the level of nature. So both church and state are coercive teachers. I think it's a very persuasive model of what states actually do. We all know that states aren't just in the coordination business. They, they, they teach about morality of family structure. Uh, Victorian states taught one thing. Uh, um, modern Western states increasingly teach another, but they all teach it. Um, they, Similarly with property rights and lots of other things. I won't go on about that. So we've got um, a metaphysically quite challenging theory that provides a rationale for believing in things like obligations and rights to liberty um, uh, and also generates a, a persuasive account of how both the church and the state uh, can actually function as coercive authorities. That seems to be deeply true of what states in particular actually do. 
So what does Hobbes do? He wants to get rid of the church as a coercive authority that's independent of and distinct from the state. That's fundamentally specific. He really hates conformism, I can tell you. Um, so I'm about a fifth of the Leviathan's church with Cardinal Bellamy. Uh, and, and, and he's pretty damn rude about Suarez as well. Um, he's clearly read. Um, so how does he do about it? Well, um, it's through the, the, the examinatio of Thomas Wright's De Mundo, the famous anti-Wright, and De Corpore, concerning body, his work at some physical theory. The debate with Bramall, he starts transforming the theory of power to remove all these powers specific to rational nature. So you can't run Suarez's authority or anything like it, if how legal authority works, because you don't have the powers which are supposed to operate. And I'm oh, sorry, I forgot to mention, of course, in the case of the church, um, we don't have the, the normative power moving us as a force of reason, but there's a higher order, a, higher, a supernatural analogue of reason, which is grace. And, and, and Suarez describes grace as a higher reason. It illuminates what reason should be telling us to do anyway, uh, and that takes us up to a higher level. And if you look at actually the metaphysics, and I'm slightly going back, but if you look at the metaphysics, uh, metaphysical account that Suarez gives of grace, it is exactly parallel in the least important parts to the metaphysical account it gives of practical reason. So just as um, practical reason involves goodness of moving us through an object of thought, so prevenient grace that prepares us for the saving acts of, of, of faith and charity works on us with divine assistance, with divine illumination through objects of thought to illuminate them and to get us through acts of faith and charity to respond to them. A very common model of prevenient grace in the early modern period allows them to give a fundamentally Augustine and illuminationist account of how grace works. Of course, if you think that, that, that coercive authority works as, as a way of channeling normative power, um, and you think that uh, the church does this in the same way as the state, you are likely to give a very analogous account of the kind of power involved. Modulating all the differences to do with the link between this natural and supernatural, that's exactly what you see happening. So, Hobbes has quite, got quite a lot to take on. The first thing Hobbes does is to remove freedom as a power. Um, he says, you can't have a power that operates contingently. It's part of the very nature of power that if it's present in, in, in form sufficient to produce an outcome, it must actually operate. You say this brick, brick has a capacity to break the window when it's chucked at the window. Well, let's chuck the brick at the window and see if it actually breaks it. If it doesn't break it, then it's not got the power. That's how the way all power works. Uh, it operates by necessity. If it doesn't operate, it's not there. It can't be contingent whether it operates. If someone had a, a power simultaneously to raise their hand or lower it, and they had uh, enough power to do either, they'd have to exercise both powers at once. And that's impossible. Why Hobbes is so convinced that you can't have determined kind of potential for is, is once you, you pass the sort of you know, table bashing side of Hobbes, rather less than obvious. Uh, I've said that that's a bit more questions, but I think it's to do with, with this reduction of power to motion that actually communicates motion. And if that's what power is, then you can't have power present without actually producing motion. But of course, contingent power is all about power being present without necessarily producing anything. It's, it's contingent whether it operates. So it's basically a certain ontological reduction of power to motions and matter of what's going on here. That means that the only power in nature is necessitating efficient causation. And that means that our action simply occurs as a necessitated effect of our <coughs> He also gets rid of normative power. If you think that power is just motions and matter, you will not be terribly delighted at a theory of a power of goodness as a not obviously material feature of the world operating through an object of your thought to produce a, a, a decision to pursue that object as your goal. The object of thought doesn't look as though it's a material object. And certainly Hobbes never, never provides a counter power, it might be. Uh, don't think anyone has since. Um, and, and goodness doesn't seem to be such a thing. So what moves you to act? Well, Hobbes says, as I've said, it's, it's the necessitating force of prior appetites. Freedom is simply um, an absence of obstacles to the satisfaction of your appetites. And nothing else produces your actions but those prior appetites. 
So you start off, if you want to influence how people act, with the appetites that they actually have. You certainly won't influence them by presenting them with objects of thought and expecting some normative power with legal backup to operate through you. That just doesn't happen. So we've got rid of freedoms of power. Getting rid of freedom of power actually has an immediate radical effect on people's normative theory. Um, if you look at page three, uh, oh, page three of the handout in the section Thomas Hobbes, Hobbes thinks that, that, that freedom is simply an absence of obstacles to power. So, you know, I'm free, so if I'm not chained up, there's no, there's no fiscal object preventing me from doing something that I want to do, like if I want to walk around the world. He says, equally, you know, freedom isn't restricted to a rational nature. A river can be free if it's, if it's undammed, because it's got a force, the current, and there ain't a dam there blocking it, so it's free. That's all freedom is, nothing special to us. Um, and all that, well, there isn't a power of freedom. Freedom, as I say, is just an absence of obstacles to power, and power is simply necessitating causation. What is, what is then uh, law going to do? It can't give recognition to a power of freedom by granting us rights to liberty and obligations in the way that Suarez thought, because it no longer exists in Hobbes' system. So all law is, for Hobbes, is simply obligation. Right to liberty is simply the gap left to you by the obligations that actually lie on you. There's nothing more to it than that. And he's very explicit. Your right to liberty doesn't come to you through the law that imposes obligations on you. So it's not protected in its very nature by any obligation at all. In fact, it only exists simply as the fact that until now no one's obligated you not to do something. Um, so that, you know, there's nothing that protects it. Um, and, as he says, for they that spoke of, speak of this subject used to confound use and lex, right and law, yet they ought to be distinguished because right consisteth in liberty to do or forbear, whereas law determineth and bindeth to one of them, so that law and right differ as much as obligation and liberty, which in one and the same matter are inconsistent. And then he goes on, and law was brought into the world for nothing else but to limit the natural liberty of particular men in such manner that they might not hurt each other. What you've got is the removal of a serious metaphysical basis for the right to liberty and complete evacuation of its nature. It's no longer protected by obligation in any way at all. You watch out for dodgy metaphysics. It can have a nasty effect in your ethical theory. Okay. Normative power, as I say, doesn't exist. Um, you simply are moved to act by prior motivations, prior appetites uh, 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 operating as necessitating causes. Objects of thought, Hobbes, Hobbes allows that you know, our thoughts have contents. Um, we, you know, we think about things, he's, he's, not, he's not a limitativist about that. But he gives no account of, 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 of how this is realized materially particularly. And he certainly doesn't give these mental objects any power to produce outcomes. He really is not part of the system at all. Okay. So um, if law is going to move us to act, how is it going to do it? It can't be facilitating the force of reason or of grace on us, those forces don't exist. The only force to produce our actions is the force of appetites, so it had better engage with existing appetites. And that's what it does. Basically, law for Hobbes um, exists simply as a, a command. And it's a command that engages a standing motivation to do what is commanded, a standing appetite to do what is commanded, as a way to securing other ends that you want. And we go back to the traffic system model. I want to move around. I know that we need some coordinating authority to move around. So the law comes on, lawgiver comes along to me and says, drive on the left, and I drive on the left. That's, that's what law is. It simply regulates the voluntary, uh, as Hobbes calls it, what we can do or refrain from doing simply as a means to obeying commands. Um, it engages, as I say, a standing appetite to do to act as commanded in relation to an authority to get the further benefits that uh, following that coordinated authority will bring, like famously hypothesis, avoidance of death, survival, escape from the ghastly state of nature. So we have the coordinative system. So we, we've transformed legal authority from being a teacher that facilitates the operationalness of normative power. Uh, and turned it 
into a vast coordinated device or so it seems. Um, actually, Hobbes takes things further. Um, there's a huge debate about the relationship between Hobbes's views of religion and um, his views, his political views. Uh, there are some people who think that Hobbes was just an atheist. There are some people that try to make out that he's a perfectly ordinary sort of Reformation theologian with a bit of metaphysical interests. Um, what we are beginning to see in this system is actually a very, very interesting transformation. Because I can't, I can't emphasize too much how important Hobbes's disbelief in normative powers and the system. Everyone talks to you, oh, Hobbes is a determinist. That's a really important fact about him. Um, but you know, you get vaguely deterministic sort of views outside Hobbes' land and quite a lot of Protestant theology. You could even look at Thomistic theology. I dare I say this in presence of Dominicans. In somewhat in those terms, if you, if you get worried by pre-motion. Uh, um, what Hobbes is doing is removing something quite central to the theology of early modern Europe, um, and very deliberately doing it, it's normative power. We've seen that the theologian like Suarez sees normative power as absolutely essential to the functioning of legal authority. The legal authority, uh, law either takes the form of normative power, or, or positive legal authority is facilitating our response to it channeling it and, and, and enabling us better to respond to it. That's what the state's doing as a teacher. Um, if you look at the fall and salvation as conceived in early modern theology, whether Protestant or Catholic, what you see is a, a basically Augustinian theory about drastic changes for, for worse and better in our receptiveness to normative power. So Adam commits the sin in the Garden of Eden, and there's a not only does he have to die, but there's a degradation of his rationality. Um, how bad a degradation is, of course, an object of debate. Protestants like Calvin thought it actually removed contingency in relation to the choice between good and evil. Catholics disagreed with that. They just said it left the choice harder in the direction of good. Uh, but they're basically running the same metaphysical system. There's no difference at the fundamental metaphysics which they're arguing. Um, again, Christ, with his coming, uh, provides us with grace that repairs us uh, 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 and restores to various degrees uh, our receptiveness to the force of reason and then elevates us to a higher level, as well as giving us immortality, eternal life in heaven. What Hobbes does, just as he takes the legislative authority and removes any feature of normative power from its operation. So all the state does is prevents you from dying, to put it very crudely. And it gets the traffic system to nice while you're alive. Um, what it doesn't do is, 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 is suddenly give you a public rationality that you were incapable of before because it enables you to respond to the volume of communion that you didn't have an understanding of before. It's not doing that job. That would require it to facilitate the operation of normative power. So when Adam sins, he doesn't lose his receptivity, the whole Hobbes, he doesn't lose his receptivity to uh, the motivating force of goodness. Um, uh, uh, he just has to die. You get this wonderful, in fact, I mean, you get this wonderful description of, of uh, as it's said, I'm just to give it to you, the wonderful description of the fall in the questions debate with Bramall. Hobbes says, Bramall is saying, well, look, Hobbes, you've got this sort of deterministic system, and you say that neither Adam nor we um, have freedom of will. We don't have this power over the will. All we've got is capacity some degree to perform actions without external ob obstacles preventing us. But that seems to happen before the fall, and that seems to happen after the fall. So the fall seems to have no effect on our freedom, as you understand it. Ain't that a bit odd? Surely there's a degradation, Bram was suggesting, of our rationality that has a negative impact on our freedom as a power. But you can't say that, Hobbes. So how do you make out to be a Christian theologian? So Hobbes says, Hobbes says, I'll tell you why God rebukes Adam after the fall. These words, hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thou shouldst not eat, convince Adam that notwithstanding God had placed him in the garden a means to keep him perpetually from dying in case he should accommodate his will to obedience of God's commandment concerning the tree of knowledge of good and evil, yet Adam was not so much master of his own will as to do it, whereby it signified that a mortal man, though invited by the promise of immortality, cannot govern his own will, though his will govern his actions, which dependence of the actions on the will is that which properly and truly is called liberty. So what the fall is all about is, one, Adam has to die. 
once he's eating that. Sorry, you've got to do that. That's going to happen. But you're going to be taught a good lesson. You can't control your will. No one can. You were under an illusion, mate. Even with all that hung on the issue, you couldn't keep yourself from the tree and fruit. Um, and then he describes Adam's state when fallen. Adam isn't, after leaving the Garden of Eden, reduced to rational degradation when fallen. It's very curious, perhaps, not to emphasize this is what he's answered with Protestant. Um, after leaving, leaving the Garden of Eden, all that happens is that Adam has to die. Otherwise, he lives in bourgeois respectability at somewhere like number 23 Acacia Avenue, Mesopotamia, uh, completely underserved. Doth God reprehend him, Adam, for doing that which he has antecedently determined that he must do? I answer no. Um, but he convinceth and instructeth him that though immortality was so easy to obtain as it might be had for the abstinence from the fruit of one only tree, yet he could not obtain but by pardon by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Nor is there here any punishment, but only a reducing of Adam and Eve to their original mortality, which, which was a state that they were originally given, in which mortality he lived over a thousand years and had a numerous issue and lived without misery, and I believe shall at the resurrection obtain the immortality which then he lost. That's it, guys. So, you know, all the state does is, is enable you to survive here and now. All Christ does is to enable you to survive forever at the last judgment, provided you've been obeying the state, of course. All the rationality story has gone out the window, along with the original account of how um, uh, political authority works. So I'll just wind up with this uh, picture. One thing I think is, is, is very obvious from this entire debate is you can't do political philosophy or legal philosophy without metaphysics. If you try to do that, you will end in either fudging or disastrous theories like Hobbes's theory or the post Hobbesian theory of, of, of coercive authorities and really coordinated device. You'll get a really unrealistic account of what states actually do. Um, and you will find yourself unable to give a plausible account of things like the right to liberty or why complying with laws is a reasonable thing to do involving uh, a response on your part to reason and not simply doing something for the authority. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.